weekend. Um, I want to start with just a short video that tells you a little bit about their work in Guelph, Canada. Are we teaching the truth in love? Oh, a man came to my Jesus telling all that he had done To fulfill the good commandments he knew every single one But Jesus said there's something that indeed he did lack Yes, the Savior told that you message back cause he was teaching the truth in love telling it like it is while holding pure motives and showing that he cared he was teaching the truth in love oh yeah a woman caught in My name is Almi Marquez, and I'm so grateful that you are part of um, this church in Well. Thank you for being supportive and being part of us in the family of God. Thanks a lot, and God bless you. teammates with the Leadbetters and we just wanted to say thank you so much for your support of them and for their ability to be here in Guelph. in putting that video together uh, was just so that you could see some of the people who have been affected by your faith and generosity. Um, that's one of the things that I'm so grateful to God for what He does in the way that He is, has set up uh, the sending out of workers and, and support from other congregations. He's building relationships. 
between this church and that church, and you have never met them, um, and they've never met you, but they love you. And uh, this week that we've gotten to spend with Shiloh Road has been really enjoyable, uh, all the time that we've gotten to spend with everybody. And by the way, uh, somebody was really, um, really wanted to know this, Gary. Uh, I was asked, this is a very important question to somebody. I won't mention their name. They wanted to know where you get your hair cut and if that was a good deal. Sport clips. Sport clips. Sport clips. Um, is that a good deal? You, you get it um, shampooed and cleaned up and massaged afterwards. I don't. Well, there you go. So sport clips, and apparently it's a it's a good deal. Did they like my hair? I don't know. They didn't say that. <laughs> uh, they just wanted to know where you got your hair cut. Um, so you'll have to. I guess you'll have to talk with them afterwards. Um, but I got advice from Ron Schultz. Oh. <laughs> 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 um, but, but I was thinking about that and thinking about that question and, and thinking about how do we determine oftentimes like what is a good deal? Uh, and I was thinking about how I determine something is a good deal. And it's often, um, it's often based on like what is a good deal for me and what's going to benefit me. And this reminds me of a story. Uh, I was witness to a, a transaction between two brothers. One brother was about 10 years old and the other brother was about five and uh, his younger brother had received a gift of a really nice uh, case knife, a Texas toothpick, very nice knife. And uh, his older brother liked it, and he was talking to his brother and trying to convince him. He said, Randall, Randall, I will trade you this knife. And he presents uh, this uh, really shiny um, $10 Walmart knife. You know, it had like a really aggressive-looking blade, very impressive to a five-year-old. He said, it's a good deal, Randall. I mean, look at how small this knife is and how big this knife is. And I was watching this, and I was just thinking about um, how do you determine what is a good deal and what's a bad deal? Who defines what is right and wrong? But, and if you leave it up to big brothers, there's often two definitions of what's a good deal and what's not a good deal. Um, right and wrong can flex according to what is a good deal for me without any consideration to what might be a good deal to you. And, and we often say, like, that's just the way the world works, right? You know, I mean, that's part of our education, part of our growing up. And we witnessed this five-year-old boy learn this lesson. That's just the way the world works. Uh, but that's a, very, that's a very human way of doing life, isn't it? Uh, and there's no mystery. I mean, just watch toddlers sharing toys uh, come to my home on an average day, uh, and you'll see this very human way of doing life. But that's the tension point of all of our relationships. Is this, you know, who decides what's the right thing to do, what's the good, what's good, and what's evil? Um, and we've been testing this from the dawn of time, haven't we? Human history. And where has that led us? Dr. Phil would ask, um, how's that working out for you? This sort of like everybody defining good and evil. Um, how's that working out? Um, I, I see in human history this way of doing life. Everyone has to protect themselves, uh, fight for survival, and it's just left a trail uh, in my life of broken relationships. We look in our world, conflict, war, and death. And if I'm going to define what's right for me and my family and my tribe or my nation or uh, my shareholders, uh, no matter what it costs you, um, we're not going to live in a very nice world, are we? Um, is that just the way the world works? How's that working out? So in this series, if we've been walking through the Gospel of John, um, 
the first 11 chapters basically um, are these miraculous signs that are performed by Jesus that John has ordered um, for a specific purpose, that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that you would have life. And as it gets through the, or the first seven signs, the gospel dramatically slows down. Because the first 11 chapters are really the first um, almost full three years of his life. And then you come to the last um, of the book, and it slows down and really encompasses basically the last week of Jesus' life that leads him to the cross. And it takes Peter on this journey where Peter tells Jesus, well, I'm not going to deny you, and he ends up, as you know, denying Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross, and Luke tells the account as Peter is walking away, as Jesus is being let out, they look, their eyes meet, and Peter remembers what he has done and what has happened. And as we said, the world works a certain way, and so if you're Peter, you understand this is how the world works. If the person that you said you would not deny, you deny, and they end up dead, then you are basically finished. That there's really nowhere else for you to go. And so John is telling this story, and as he comes to the end of his story and his telling of Jesus, he comes to this place where the disciples are missing Jesus. And so in chapter 21, verse 3, I am going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat that night, and they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And so here are these disciples that gave up everything to go and follow Jesus. And Jesus has now died, has been buried, and they think their mission is over. And it's interesting that they go back to what they did before Jesus even came on the scene. Because I think there's this tendency in our life, when we are uncertain, we go back to where we are secure. When when we feel unsafe, we go back to safety. We go back to what we once knew. And we go back to what, what we once knew, regardless of whether or not it was unhealthy. You see this all the time, people who have battled addictions with drugs or alcohol, with pornography or bad relationships, that they get to a place where they're uncertain, they're insecure, they're not sure what tomorrow looks like, and what they do is they go back to where they feel safe, even though what was unsafe has led to this destructive path. We continually go back to where we once were because we feel safe where we once were. Yeah, I'm, and if they, had, if they had believed, they would have reengaged in the mission. They wouldn't have been, I, I mean, if they had understood these signs, I mean, and they did believe. I mean, we hear them confess several times, you're the Christ, you're the king that we've been waiting for. Um, but if they had understood that, they would have reengaged the mission. Yeah. 
in, in the face of disaster. And I think it's significant that that night that they, you know, went back to fishing and they had fished all night. Is this starting to sound like a, another familiar story earlier on? They had fished all night and they caught nothing. Have you ever worked so hard at something and in the end had nothing to show for it? I mean, can you pull that, that moment up when you realized this was all for nothing? I don't have anything to show for all my effort. As we were putting this together, I was reminded of um, back in 2009, I was coming home from a year and a half in, as an apprentice missionary uh, with a team in South Africa. And I came home, and I was, I was very disillusioned, uh, felt a deep sense of failure. And, and the biggest thing on my mind was, was just this sense of that I had wasted so many resources, so much time, and money had been sent uh, had been spent to send me to this place. And we didn't do what I, what I envisioned that we would be doing. And in the end, I was like, you know, do we have anything? So when I came home, um, I, I don't know if I consciously realized this, but I poured all of my effort into um, seeking to prove that I was worth something, mostly to myself. Um, and, and to me, that was uh, what I always knew in, in high school uh, and just before I'd gone to the AIM program was, man, you work hard and you study hard. So I applied for LCU. I got a job, and I determined— uh, I didn't have many support structures when I came home. My parents were living in Brazil. Um, I had a couple of friends in Lubbock I was living with uh, as roommates. Um, but I got a job, and I said, I want to work a full 40 hours. I'm going to put myself through school. I don't have any other way I can imagine to pay for school. I signed up for LCU, uh, enrolled, and I enrolled myself in 16 hours worth of courses— and that worked out pretty good for a while. For about two semesters, uh, I was on the president's list. I had good grades. I uh, had this great scholarship. I remember my first, um, in the first semester, I got this, this call to come down to the office. It was good news. Uh, I had my scholarships had paid for everything that was necessary, and there was a disbursement check in the amount of something like $3,000. I was like, what do I do with this? And the financial aid officer said, well, you, know, you know, how's your computer? I was like, well, it's not it's not very good. She said, well, maybe you should get a computer um, for this semester at school. You can expect a similar disbursement um, at the beginning of next semester, as long as your grades and your scholarship doesn't change. Um, so everything was great. You know, I went and got a new computer, and my first two semesters were great. About the same time, the next semester, um, well, two things happened. Uh, after two semesters on the president's list, um, working 40 hours a week, we had uh, a new manager come into my place of work, and he wanted to do some payroll restructuring, and my hours got cut down to 20 hours a week. And I said, well, that's okay. Um, I can still make this work. So I got another job, and I was working night hours uh, and going to school. And really, in, in the space of just a couple of months, I turned into something of a zombie. Um, I was surrounded by amazing spiritual people. I had stopped going to church. Uh, they never saw me. Uh, I had disengaged from a lot of that. Um, but then I got this, this phone call to come back down to the office, um, and I had a bill for $50 instead of a disbursement check. And I thought, I don't know about this. Something is giving me a sinking feeling. It uh, turns out the first disbursement check was uh, a mistake. And, you know, some typing on the keyboard. And uh, they said, oh, um, actually, uh, we're going to need that back from you. And, and we can't release your grades this semester or enroll you for fall semester until you pay that off. And by the way, there's, uh, you know, this is past due, and so there's some penalties <laughs> attached to it. And I thought, wow, things really turned around for me. Um, 
And, and I just thought, um, man, what a mistake. It's like everything had fallen apart, and it seemed like I had no grades to show for it. I had, I had no money to show for it. I was in debt. I was like, man, what was this whole year about? At the end of it, I had, I had nothing, I felt like. Um, Jesus was there. <clears throat> Hindsight's twenty twenty. Jesus was there. I failed to recognize him. Um, and I think it's the same for all of us as disciples. If we try to make our way based on the old way of making sense of the world, what makes sense um, to my, the sensory equipment that we come standard equipped with, um, this world is, I mean, we're going to miss Jesus. We're not going to recognize him. Now watch what happens as we re-engage with the story, verses 5 and 6. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Um, What Jesus tells them to do here is so insultingly simple. I mean, they've spent all night fishing, right? You know, is it is it the case that, af- that as seasoned fishermen spending the whole night fishing, they would have not thought maybe to cast their net on the other side of the boat? It's like, oh, yeah, you know, would it? No, that, that's not what's happening here. Uh, and, and here's the point. Jesus' followers will be most effective when they simply listen for Jesus and obey his word rather than their senses. And that is when they will truly see him, what he's doing and how he's involved in their lives. Verse 7. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. Look, Peter didn't recognize it was the Lord. It's the Lord. John says it. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and he jumped into the water. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting that it's John that points it out to Peter. And then Peter responds by jumping into the water and going to Jesus. And I'm I'm sure that you've had moments like that in your life where you needed someone else to point out what God was doing around you and in this world. I'm sure there have been moments when you have come on a Sunday morning maybe really struggling in your faith, maybe really questioning, maybe really hurting, but the people that you are sitting around give you courage and give you strength and they help you to believe. Because sometimes when our faith is struggling, we need the people who surround us to have faith for us because our faith is weak. And their faith and the strength of their faith gives us courage to continue to a new day. Peter, in his mind, is finished. He's denied Jesus. He's turned away from him. He's gone back to what he knows. And now, here's Jesus. And Peter's first response when realizing who it is, is to run back to him. It's the disciples who help Peter re-engage with Jesus. Then the other disciples followed in the boat. So Peter has left the boat, but the other disciples follow, towing the net full of fish. For they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw the fire of burning coals there with the fish on it and some bread. It's interesting in this story that Jesus already has what they have been working all night for. 
they've worked and worked and worked, and it seems like they've gotten nowhere. And then Jesus tells them to throw their nets on the other side. They throw their nets on the other side. They come back with this huge catch of fish, 157 fish. And Jesus already has what they have been trying so hard to get. And here, Peter comes on shore. And John is really careful to point out that when they get there, there is this charcoal fire. The other time that a charcoal fire is talked about in John's gospel is back the third time Peter standing around a courtyard and someone says, hey, weren't you one of his disciples? And John's text says that Peter was there warming himself over a charcoal fire. And I wonder as if Peter gets to shore, this smell of the charcoal fire hits his nostrils and these images, these reminders of what had happened in the past come flooding back. And all you can remember is what you did and where you were and how it felt when you denied Jesus. And it's so easy in those moments to think, well, this is what defines me. How I messed up defines who I am. But what Jesus wants these people to know, especially Peter, is your past does not define you. The cross of Christ defines you and it does not hold your past against you. And there is a new day for Peter and the invitation to a fresh start, an invitation to be a part of what he is doing in this world. But Peter's um, problems don't begin with what we see. There was a fundamental failure in Jesus' encounter here with Peter. Yeah, I mean, I just think about so many of these moments are building on one another. From, from the story in the past, I mean, this charcoal fire is a reminder. The way that Jesus has called them out of the boat is a reminder. And it's almost as if Jesus is inviting him to, you know, to clear the slab because there's a failure in the foundation of Peter's faith. And it wasn't, it wasn't his denial. That was just a symptom of it, wasn't it? Um, his fundamental failure was understanding Understanding Jesus himself, what he was about, why, how Jesus became king through suffering and absorbing abuse and death uh, and this new way of life. Because in the old way, uh, in the old way, when Jesus points out that Peter will betray him, what would your response be? When somebody points out uh, or or suggests a, a problem or a failure in your life or maybe something you need to work on, in the old way of thinking, the old way of being human. I know what I do. I bow up and I say, no, I'm not. No, you know, give me a chance. I'll, I'll prove it. I'm going to deny um, what I really actually know in my heart. Yeah, that, you know, it hits hard and it hurts because it's true. And that's what Peter did. He, you know, he's still living in this old way of, no, I'm not. You know, uh, he, he refused to believe Jesus. And Jesus is taking him back in, in these moments. He's taking him back in, in many ways, I think, to that first sign uh, that the first sign of Peter's faith, 
uh, that first gospel moment. Do you remember the great catch of fish? And, and Peter realized who Jesus was. He believed. And what did he say? He says, get away from me. Leave me in my mess. I'm, I'm too far gone. I'm a hopeless case. I'm a man who is full of sin. That was the moment. That was this gospel moment where Peter realized his failings. And what was Jesus' response to him? You know, did, did Jesus, you know, say, yeah, you're right, you know, get out of my presence? No, he didn't. You know, his response was, don't be afraid. His response was, man, this is a guy that I can use. Matthew 5, verse 3, the lucky ones, um, blessed are the poor in spirit. The lucky ones, the fortunate people in this world are the people who understand that they are spiritually bankrupt. And that's when Jesus' gospel, his way of life, his way of looking at the world becomes real. The kingdom of heaven belongs to people like this. And if I understood this new way, I would embrace the truth about my failings, the truth about my sin. I would, I would open the doors to all those secret closets in my life, and I would pull everything out um, and see how Jesus' light could use my surrender uh, for transformation to shine his truth. I mean, isn't, isn't this the saying? When anything is exposed to light, it becomes visible. Anything that is visible is light. And so it is said, Awake, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. Let Jesus shine on you. That's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. It's when we admit our weaknesses, when we start living according to a different set of rules, a different set of rules that, that doesn't call me to defend myself and protect my stuff and um, and say, no, I'm not. I don't have a problem. But to embrace the fact I do have problems. That is when I will see Jesus. That is where I'm going to find grace and strength. Uh, verses 10 through 12 here. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you just caught. He breaks this moment for him. I don't know where Peter is. Maybe he's locked eyes on that coal fire. Jesus breaks this moment. Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. What's interesting is Jesus invites them to be a part of what he's doing. They've already been fishing all night. They're tired. They get to shore. There's the charcoal fire. There are the fish on it. Jesus has already prepared everything, and yet still he invites them to bring what they have. And the only reason they have what they have is because Jesus has provided it for them. That everything they have caught is because of him. And yet, even though he has prepared what they were trying to catch, he still invites them to be a part of this. He, he invites them to bring what they have, even though he does not need it. He invites you to bring what you have even though he does not need it, even though he has already prepared it, 
even though there are so many people. And I think it's so arrogant of us at times because we think that the kingdom rises and falls on us. And it does not. The kingdom is going to go forward regardless of what you and I do. But the good news is that you have been invited to be a part of it. To be a part of it going forward. To be a part of it going to Canada. Or simply just going right here in Tyler, Texas. Or going to Haiti. Or going to Santa Fe. So when we talk about our mission and our vision as a church to exalt, encourage, engage, we move out into this world to engage the people that God has placed around us with the gospel. And he invites you to be a part, to bring what you have, regardless of what it is, even though he doesn't need it. He simply invites you to be part of his story. Man, I mean, is that not incredible? I mean, I look at all the ways that I have tried to inject value into my life, to prove to myself that I'm worthy, that I'm worth something. Um, and in the end, it, you know, it really didn't amount to much. Uh, and I think that and we face so many of these moments as disciples where uh, Jesus is calmly waiting. He's letting, us, he's letting us work it out for ourselves. He's letting us have the opportunity to recognize him, to see him, and to, to re-engage in the mission. I had totally disengaged uh, from, from so many of the spiritual values that I had grown up with, that I had learned, that, that I went to South Africa with, because I was, I was concerned about, uh, I, well, maybe I was discouraged. I was going back to what I knew. Um, but if, if we receive this invitation to re-engage the mission, this part of the question is, what is the mission? As we've been looking at, at John, as you guys have been looking at the book of John and these seven signs, you know, the culmination of that is, is this truth in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. The purpose of these signs is that you will believe and have life in his name. Um, this is what Jesus' opponents were terrified of. They said in, in John chapter 11, verse 48, if we let him go on like this, the whole world is going to believe and go after him. That's the mission. Uh, and, and Jesus' resurrection, it was the culmination, it was the beginning of, of our ability to participate in that sign, in this belief in, in a new world. Because as, if you read, as you read the letters, the rest of the, the New Testament, the people that saw him raised from the dead, the people that spent time with him after he had been raised, what they saw, they were convinced is the future of what will be. What he is, we will be. That's First John chapter 3, verse 2. Um, what he is, all of creation will be changed to be. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 21. The people who saw him were convinced of this fact. And the biggest question left, for me anyway, as I read this, I mean, that's a vision of an incredible world I want to be a part of. How, how are we going to get there? How are we going to be in this new world? Would you like to know? This is a burning question for me. Here's, here's the plan. You. You are the plan. Can, you, can, you, can we get our heads around that? It's difficult for me. Uh, this, and this is so beautifully illustrated in the book of Ephesians. And, and I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 you have been chosen according to the plan to be to the praise of his glory. That's another way of saying to make God famous in the world. Jesus demonstrated a new way to live life. We are a new 
creation made for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He's given his spirit to live in you. And as we choose to surrender to this new way of of life-giving love, taking off the old way uh, of life-taking selfishness. That's the way that we learned. As we do that and embrace his way, it changes everything. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. Uh, And finally, Ephesians chapter 5. I'll read this one, verses 15 through 17. Be very careful. Here's the culmination of, of Paul's message in Ephesians. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, But wise, make the most of every opportunity. The days are against us. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the mission is. Let me ask you a question. If we had, um, uh, what do you call that? Um, You know, at school sometimes whenever everybody's dad and mom comes in to talk about their work, uh, one of those vocation days. If we were to have a vocation day, and we had a barista, and we had Gary, uh, maybe a general contractor, uh, a day trader, me, and a school teacher, um, and, and we were presenting in front of a class, who is doing the work of the Lord? You know, with all these people up here. The first answer that would occur to many of us, you know, as I grew up in the church, would be, oh, you know, it's the minister and, and the missionary. They're doing the work of the Lord. Um, but that's not that's not the emphasis. Um, in, in the scripture reading that we had this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I love that last verse. The resurrection, the whole chapter was about the, the resurrection of Jesus. And his conclusion is, be encouraged because you know that because of the resurrection, in the Lord, that's what we are. We are in the Lord. Your work is not in vain. Whatever you're doing Uh, whether, for me, it it used to run a forklift. If you're running a forklift, if you're making coffee, if you're day trading, whatever you're doing, if you're grandpawing and grandmawing, whatever you are engaged in in the world, as your life is transformed by this different way of being human, it will find its expression in the kingdom of heaven. This is the work of the Lord. And as more and more people see this different way coming out of our mouth in our words, the way that we are with people, the way that we choose to make decisions based on these other values, it's going to highlight the contrast between this old way of being human and this new way of being human. And as more and more people are convinced of this message and engage in that way of life, I'm convinced that these pockets of influence more and more will be changed to be this new creation until someday all of creation will embrace this new way of life. See, Jesus invites Peter with these questions. Do you love me? Yes, yes, you know I I love you. Feed my sheep. He, He gives them this specific mission, this purpose in life. This is what you are supposed to be about. And he ends with this phrase, now, come and follow me. The the invitation to Peter is the same invitation to you. See, Peter, or I'm sorry, John, through this gospel, has been trying to paint a picture of this new world. This world that John um, is 
going back to Genesis 1 and pulling from the beginning where God created the world through his word. And he points out that now God is creating a new world through his word. The word that became flesh and made its dwelling among us named Jesus. And through this world, he is, word, he is creating a new world. And you are invited into that world. Not just to be a part, but to be a co-creator in that world. Amen. See, God, through his word, is creating a new world. And you are invited to be a co-creator. You are invited to share. You are invited to bring what you have. You are invited to go and share what Jesus has done in your life with those who are around you. And through each one of us living our life on mission outside of this, that calling to go into this world and to share the good news of Jesus, through that, this world is being recreated. Amen. And new life is being born every single day. Do not think that your work does not matter. Do not think that where you live is not significant. That where God has you right now is for a purpose. And it is for his purpose. It is for his kingdom. It is for his glory that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Father, today, may we be your people sent into this world, believers in Jesus Christ, the risen Savior of the world, the King of the universe. And Father, because we believe May we have life, and may we take that life to the ends of the earth. Father, we pray that as your people, you would send us out to give hope. Father, to bring light into the darkness, to bring life where there is death. Father, to help the blind see. And Father, we pray that through your spirit at work within us, the world may know you, who have sent us, who have called us. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And that invitation, if you have never accepted, we simply offer to you. Come to Jesus, come into the water, die to yourself, and begin life anew. But if we could simply pray for you wherever you are. We're going to have shepherds, we're going to have ministry staff around the auditorium um, for particularly in the back. Um, if we could pray for you, we would love to do that. Um, but whatever we, we could do, come while we stand and sing. How deep the